I'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church. I'm glad you've chosen to worship here with us this morning on what is, believe it or not, the last Sunday before Christmas. I know it flies by. I was talking to Nancy earlier this week, and she said, you know, we're going to blink, and it'll be January. And yeah, she's absolutely right. If you still have Christmas shopping to do, leave right now and go shopping. If you still have travel plans to make, leave right now and go make your travel plans because we're going to wake up and it's going to be Christmas Eve, it seems like. So we're glad that you've chosen to worship here with us this morning, even though things are about to get pretty hectic. So as Joshua mentioned, we would love to have you back on Christmas Eve. We have that service at 5 p.m. We intentionally keep it under an hour. That way you can come here, you can be a part of that service, we can worship together, but then you still have plenty of time for family, for friends, for other traditions. So again, we really hope that you can be here on Christmas Eve, and we really hope that you decide to make us part of your Christmas Eve tradition. So, we are looking at a sermon series called Why? And the question that we've been asking is, why did Jesus come? Why did the incarnation happen the way it did? What are the reasons for Jesus being born in the flesh? What are the reasons for God coming to dwell amongst mankind? In our first week, we focused on one word, and that word was reveal. And we talked about how Jesus came to reveal what God is like to sinful man. And that sermon mainly served as a reminder to followers of Christ, a reminder of just how incredible the incarnation is, a reminder of that core thing that Jesus says when he looks at his disciples and he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. If you have known me, you have known God. And so that sermon was a reminder of what Jesus reveals. And then last week we focused on a second word, and that second word was fulfill. Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament. So don't throw out your Old Testament the way some people would have you do. Instead of, instead of throwing out your Old Testament, look to Genesis 3 instead. And know that Jesus would fulfill the need for victory over Satan. Look to Genesis 12 and know that Jesus would fulfill the promise to Abraham. Look to countless prophecies of old and know that Jesus would fulfill those prophecies one after another after another. And look to the law and know that Jesus would perfectly fulfill the law the way you and I never could. And that he would become our righteousness. Now, if that first sermon was a reminder, that second sermon about fulfilling, that was more of an encouragement. And the idea behind that is that as we read about everything that Jesus has fulfilled, as we read through the pages of the Old Testament, we can be more confident than ever in Jesus' sufficiency as our Savior. So first sermon, reminder. Second sermon, encouragement. But then we get to today. And this week is a little bit different. This sermon is not a reminder as much. It's not so much an encouragement. As I was writing this sermon, I discovered that this sermon is very much a challenge because it challenged me as I was writing it. And I pray that God will use it to challenge you as well. So with that, open your Bible to Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use one of ours. That'll be located on page 694. And as always, if you don't own a Bible, grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today. But before we get into Matthew 10... Let's pray together, and then we'll get started. 
Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the different things that it does week in and week out. As we read different passages, as we discover different books, God, we find out more about who you are. And sometimes as we read your word, it reminds us of things that we're tempted to forget. Sometimes it encourages us when we really need uplifting. But then sometimes it challenges us. And this passage is one of those passages. And I pray that you would give us open hearts and open minds to the challenge that you present to us this morning. God, thank you for your son. Thank you for the incarnation that we celebrate this time of year. And as John mentioned, I pray that we'll never put that on the back burner with all the other things that happen around this time of year with Christmas. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for our time of worship. And I pray that all these things will be honoring and glorifying to you. We love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, before we get into verses 34 through 39, I want to quickly summarize what comes before it, mainly verses 5 through 25 of Matthew chapter 10. In those verses, Jesus is sending his disciples out to preach. He tells them to go out and proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But as he does this, he gives them some orders, some very practical orders. At first, he tells them where to go, where not to go. He tells them what to bring, what not to bring. He tells them whether or not they should accept payment for this preaching that they're doing. But then he gets a little bit darker. He tells them not only practical advice, but he tells them that persecution will surely come as they go out and proclaim the truth about who he is. He tells them that they are going into hostile territory and they better be ready for the persecution that will come their way. Don't be surprised when things get tough. But he does tell them that when things get tough, you're not alone. When you find yourself in a bind, when all of a sudden you don't know what to say, trust me, the spirit will be with you and the spirit will speak for you. But then he tells them again, even your own family could betray you. But then he says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And really, in the big scheme of things, tying it all together, Jesus closes by saying that what it all comes down to, guys, is this. If they persecute me, they're going to persecute you, too. No servant is greater than his master. So be prepared for what's coming your way as you go out and proclaim who I am. This will not necessarily be smooth sailing, and you need to be ready for that. Now, regardless of what you think about Jesus, you have to give him credit for one thing in this passage and really throughout the Gospels in their entirety. You have to tip your cap to Jesus for honesty. What we don't see here is a bait and switch tactic. And throughout his ministry, Jesus is very clear about the cost of following him. He tells people from the very get go, this will be a challenge. This could require sacrifice. This could require some incredible steps of self-denial that you can't even fully wrap your mind around yet. Jesus does not get his disciples to get excited by sharing all the perks of following him and then get them somehow to commit to a contract. And then at the very last minute say, oh, yeah, by the way, I talked about how great following me is going to be. Well, guess what? Eh, there's going to be some challenges, too. So hope you're prepared for that. You already signed on the dotted line. Good luck to you. Hope you don't have to face those challenges as much as you might have to. Jesus is very, very honest. 
he says from the very beginning, this will not be easy. If you're going to back out, now's your chance. Back out now. Count the cost. Know what you're getting yourself into as you follow me. Then we pick up in verse 26 of Matthew 10. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny my before my father who is in heaven. So after all this time, warning the disciples of what could be coming their way, all of the dangers, all of the threats, all of the potential hardships, Jesus seeks to encourage them. He tells them, don't be afraid of that persecution that I just told you will come your way. Don't be afraid that God doesn't know what you're going through. God is aware of everything that you'll be facing. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He's not oblivious to the challenges that are going to come your way. But then he argues even further that the pain and the suffering and the hardship and the challenge that these persecutions will bring, all of those things are temporary. All of that pain, all of that suffering, all that stuff pales in comparison to the punishment that God the Father can give in eternity for those who don't follow Christ. Who don't know the grace of God. So then Jesus tells the disciples, don't fear them. Fear God. Don't deny me. Acknowledge me. And in the end, it'll be worth it. Then we pick up in verse 34 of Matthew 10. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Wait a minute. This is Christmas. And yet Jesus says, I have not come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. What's that all about? I mean, all those hymns that we sing that we love so much at Christmas, they're all about peace on earth and Jesus bringing peace. What about all those passages that we love so much that we don't read any other time of year, but we read them around Christmas because we like the idea of peace on earth, goodwill to men. What about Luke 2, 14, where Jesus is born and the angels proclaim glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And yet here we read that Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace. What's the deal here? Well, the truth is that Jesus knows, just like we all too often know as well, that sometimes permanent peace requires temporary conflict. And as these disciples go out and proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, as they go out and proclaim the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing, they should not expect peace. They should expect conflict. They should expect persecution. They should expect division. Because Jesus has brought a sword. 
in proclaiming something like this, proclaiming this truth that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, you are inviting a sword upon yourself. You are inviting God to take that sword and cut in half and divide you from some of the things that you hold dear. But Jesus makes it clear that he has not come to bring peace. Pick up in verse 35 of Matthew 10. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. I'm sure many of you are thinking, Jesus, we didn't need your help with that one. Verse 36. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So this is where we really encounter face to face the challenge of this passage. And the challenge that Jesus issues to his followers and is issuing to me and is issuing to you as well is that he does not allow his followers' loyalty to be divided. Period. Nothing should come before him. Jesus tells the disciples that not even your own families should come before me. And if you love your father or your mother or your son or your daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. This shouldn't be that surprising. I mean, after all, Jesus redefines the idea of family completely in Matthew chapter 12, verse 50, when he tells people that his family is not his mother or his brother or those biological siblings, kind of half biological siblings. He says that his true family is whoever does the will of my father in heaven. That's who my mother is and my brother and my sister Whoever does the will of my father in heaven. And we can be guaranteed that this message of Jesus, this truth that the kingdom of God is at hand, the gospel, it will divide families. Look at Luke chapter 12, verses 51 through 53 in a very, very similar passage, maybe even with stronger language. Luke writes this. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. There will be, they will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. In Matthew 8, Jesus even tells one guy who's interested in following him, But then says, now, wait a minute, Jesus, I do want to follow you. I'm going to be behind you. I'm on board. But let me go bury my father first. Jesus looks this guy in the eye and says, let the dead bury their own dead. Not exactly the most reverent thing to say to someone who's burying their father. But the challenge in these passages is clear. Now, the challenge is so clear because this isn't the Jesus that we always like to read about. This is not the tame and domesticated Jesus that we really love to encounter. This is not the Jesus that just talks about judge not lest ye be judged. This is not just the Jesus who says turn the other cheek. This is a Jesus who calls us out and makes dead clear his desire for our loyalty. 
and his desire that every single thing in this life that would at all demand our loyalty ahead of him, that we take a sword and we cut it and we push those things off to the side. This is not the tame Jesus we often like to read about. I'd like to share a couple stories with you. Eric Liddell is the first story. If you've never heard of Eric Liddell, Eric Liddell was born in 1902. He was the child of two Scottish missionaries. And as a kid, he was often sick. He was often frail and weak. But over time, he developed into a really great athlete, eventually running track in college. And in spite of his very unorthodox running style, Eric Liddell became so good that he was training for the 1924 Paris Olympics. And he earned the nickname the Flying Scotsman. And as Eric Liddell prepared for these Olympics, he was mainly focusing on one event. His best event was the 100. And with that event, an entire nation's hopes rested on his shoulders. The whole country knew that this was their hope for gold. Eric Liddell running the 100, basically a sprint. But then in the weeks and months leading up to the Olympics... He found out something that was kind of inconvenient. He found out that the 100 was on the Sabbath. And Eric Liddell took his faith extremely seriously to the point where he decided not to run his best event because it fell on a Sunday. Now, many people tried to convince him otherwise. They told him, look, Eric, you can go to church before and then you can run. Maybe you can go to an extra church service the next week. Maybe you can go to extra church the next day. But you don't have to back out of this event. But Eric Liddell wouldn't budge. He even got threats from people who placed all their hope on him only to see him back out of the 100. Many people felt betrayed by Eric Liddell. But... He stuck to his guns. He didn't run the 100. Instead, he started training for the 400, a completely different event in terms of preparation, in terms of training. And even though the 400 was not his best event, Eric Liddell ran it at the Paris Olympics in 1924, won the gold medal, and set a new world record. Now, Eric Liddell refused to let loyalty to his own athletic achievement get in the way of his loyalty to Jesus. And if you hear that and think, oh, yeah, well, that's kind of a petty example, though. He still won gold. Whoop-de-doo, big sacrifice for Eric Liddell. Well, it would become even more clear where his loyalty lies when he quit running to become a missionary and then died at the age of 43 in a Chinese internment camp. Eric Liddell's loyalty to Christ was more important than loyalty to anything else in this life. Maybe you've heard of Kylie Basuti. More recent example, in 2009, Kylie Basuti won a contest to become a Victoria's Secret model, and she had dreamed her entire childhood of being a model. But then shortly after getting that job, she gave up her career because she felt it didn't match up with her Christian faith. Kylie Basuti is an example of someone who refused to put loyalty to her childhood dreams or her career that certainly would have been very lucrative ahead of her loyalty to Jesus. One more example is Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was a ruthless politician in the Nixon White House. He was directly involved in the Watergate scandal. And as things were getting shaked out with the Watergate scandal, Chuck Colson knew he was in trouble and he became a Christian. And as he faced court, he, instead of taking a plea deal and maybe serving less time, maybe getting out of that situation with his skin, 
he felt that his new faith demanded that he tell the truth. So he declined to take the plea deal. He told the truth. The judge did not show him any mercy for his honesty. He got one to three years in prison for what he did. And on the courthouse steps, reporters asked him why in the world he didn't take the plea deal. Why did he insist on telling the truth? And Chuck Colson famously said this, What happened in court today was the court's will and the Lord's will. I have committed my life to Jesus Christ and can work for him in prison as well as out. There were some people that were skeptical about just how genuine Chuck Colson's conversion was. But sure enough, Chuck Colson started Prison Fellowship, which still exists to this very day as the foremost prison ministry. Liddell, Basuti, and Colson are all people who refuse to let their loyalty to Jesus be compromised by achievement or fame or fortune or career or, in Chuck Colson's case, even his own personal freedom. But again, in this passage, Jesus is talking about family. There are probably lots of us who would say, you know, I could deal with giving up fame or achievement or career or fortune or maybe even a few years of my freedom. I'd be willing to give that up for Jesus, I think. But my family, those are the people I love more than anyone else on this planet. Could Jesus really ask that I give that up? You may have heard me talk before about a girl named Samantha. I met Samantha when we were living in Batesville, working at the church there. Samantha's a few years younger than me. She was born blind. And she started coming to our church because she felt that her church, she was going to at the time, wasn't really giving her the doctrine or the sound teaching that she felt that she needed. So she left her family's traditional Catholic church, much to their chagrin, to come to our church instead. And of course, she was blind, so she needed rides, and she did not live close to the church, but there were lots of people who went and picked her up. They picked her up for Sunday morning, they picked her up for Wednesday night, they picked her up for all kinds of things. All the while, her family was very, very angry and very unsupportive of her decision to come to a different church. One day when she was dropped off by a family from our church, she found everything she owned in black garbage bags sitting on the curb because her family kicked her out as they left that church. Now, Samantha lived with someone from church for a few weeks during a time of transition. She eventually got into an apartment where she was able to take care of herself in spite of her disability. She then enrolled at Cincinnati Christian University, and she's about to graduate with a degree in counseling. So she is an incredible, incredible story. And as I prepared for this sermon, as I read that passage, Matthew 10, 34 through 39, where Jesus demands that his followers even be willing to give up their family to follow him, I couldn't help but think of Samantha. So I stay in touch with Samantha and I emailed her and I asked her to share in her own words some of what she learned from that experience. And this is what she wrote. For me, following the Lord, even at the cost of family relationships, has shown me that if a person makes the right decision, no matter how hard it is, God always provides in the end. I will never forget how the Lord's followers surrounded me with their love and support during that difficult time, day after day after day. If this had not had happened, I honestly don't think I would have had the strength to go through with what needed to happen. I believe the Lord knew that, 
which is why he surrounded me with that kind of love and support to encourage me. My family relationship suffered greatly, yet my relationship with God grew and continues to grow. I have gone from feeling bad for expressing my feelings to God and not having a very deep relationship with him because of that guilt to learning that it is okay to express my feelings, even ones that many think are wrong, like anger. Leaving my family most certainly was not easy. In fact, it would have been much easier for me to have just not followed God and stayed with them. It would have avoided a huge mess, and I knew that. It sounds pretty appealing, yet wrong decisions are often that way. They sound appealing and easier. That's why people make them. I'm glad I decided to do the harder right decision and leave my family to follow the Lord, and I don't regret a thing about it. I have a relationship with God that I never would have had otherwise, and relationships with followers of the Lord I never would have had otherwise. Samantha is blessed and that while following Jesus has certainly caused division between her and her family, her relationships with those people have suffered. In spite of that, her relationship with God has flourished. And Samantha is someone who understands that Jesus does not allow his followers loyalty to be divided. Jesus demands everything of his disciples in spite of the persecution that may come. In spite of the sacrifices that are almost guaranteed to these people who will go out and preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But can Jesus really demand any more than what he already has? We've seen people who gave up career and fame and fortune and achievement and even freedom. We've seen Samantha who gives up her family, those relationships that we hold more dear than maybe any other relationship in this life. Can Jesus really ask any more than that? Well, the answer is yes. Look at verse 38. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For the first time in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus mentions one word that would have caused a giant lump in everyone's throat when they first heard it. He mentions that one word that sent a chill down his audience's spine. And that word is cross. You know, for us, it's kind of hard to fathom the fear that that word would have evoked. I mean, for us, it's easy to look at the cross and think of nothing more than a symbol, nothing more than victory. Think of nothing more than the hope that the cross has given us. But to his audience, the cross was not a symbol. The cross was a real and present danger, a real and present threat, a real and present source of pain and death and suffering and humiliation. But Jesus looks his disciples in the eye and a cross is exactly what he asks. He doesn't leave it just at family. He asks his disciples, will you be loyal? Even in the shadow of a cross with your name on it. Will you not only give up your family, but for me, will you give up your very life? Because Jesus does not allow his followers' loyalty to be divided. In the 1500s, William Tyndale translated the Bible into common English so everyone could read. He believed that everyone should have access to the Word of God, not just the wealthy, not just the educated. 
But there were some people who didn't really take too kindly to Tyndale's vision of getting scripture to the masses. And so eventually Tyndale was strangled and burned at the stake because he refused to give up his loyalty to Jesus and what he believed God had called him to. Dietrich Bonhoeffer could have compromised his loyalty to Jesus in the name of loyalty to Adolf Hitler. But when Dietrich Bonhoeffer faced the choice of saving his own life and giving up his loyalty to Jesus or basically dying a horrible, gruesome death, Dietrich Bonhoeffer chose the noose. Jesus came to divide. He divides us from the things in this world which ask for our loyalty. He demands that every single ounce of our love, every single ounce of our dedication, every single ounce of our lives go to him. For some, this will mean giving up dreams and careers and hopes and fame and fortune. For others, this will mean giving up family relationships like Samantha. And for a few, this could even mean giving up our own lives. The stakes are high. The expectations are clear. The warnings are given. Jesus came to divide. And the question that you and I must now wrestle with is where does our loyalty lie? Because Jesus does not allow his followers' loyalty to be divided. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that pierces our hearts, that challenges us, that convicts us. And God, I pray that as we read this passage, we will be challenged and we will be convicted. I also pray that we'll be inspired by those who have come before us, who have followed you no matter what cost it took of them. God, I pray that as we celebrate Christmas, we won't just look to the passages that we really like, the passages that make us feel good, but that we'll really consider the implications of your incarnation and what you demand of your followers as a result. God, I pray that you would be with those of us who struggle to show you loyalty in all things. I think all of us could admit that. And I pray that you would challenge us and inspire us to dedicate our loyalty, to dedicate our very lives to you in all things. God, I pray for those of us in here who may not have made that decision to give you our loyalty. I pray that your word and your spirit would convict those people to dedicate their lives to you this morning. God, thank you for the Christmas season. Thank you that you've come to bring peace, but you've also come to bring a sword. And God, I pray that we can find peace with that and we can find hope in that and understand exactly what you're doing. God, we love you. We praise you. We ask these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. There is another passage in Scripture where Jesus compares people to sheep and goats. And he says that one day the sheep will be at the right hand and the goats will be at my left hand. And basically the idea is that those who do not follow Christ will be at Jesus's right hand. Those who don't follow Christ will be at Jesus's left hand. And there is this division that takes place and Jesus makes it clear. I pray that this morning, if you have not placed your faith 
in Christ, that you will make that decision. I pray that by the grace of God, he will adopt you as one of his children because of what Jesus has done for you. I pray that every single one of us might leave here as sheep, not as goats. So if you haven't made that decision yet to follow Christ, talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to answer any questions that you have, happy to pray with you, happy to look at Scripture with you as you consider what Jesus may be demanding of you. So talk to one of those guys before you leave this morning.